Good morning. Our scripture reading today is the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then 40 weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for a half of the week he shall put an end to a sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to be all over the place today um, as we finish up our study in, in Daniel, um, Daniel 10 through 12. But I asked Cheryl to read that passage because that's going to be the foundation for us. So if you brought your Bibles, get ready if you didn't bring a Bible, we have them for you on the tables in the back. We have them in the lobby. Please grab one. It's our gift to you. Um, I'm excited to, to dive into this with you. Several years ago, back in the 1950s, the Museum of Natural History in New York decided to put on an exhibit where basically anyone who walked into this exhibit would feel like they were a dog. And, and so what they did was they constructed all of the, the set, so to speak, in, in the room um, to look like it would look if, if you were a dog walking in the room from a dog's perspective. And so the legs on the tables looked like massive columns. And the chairs that were around the kitchen table looked like just these majestic thrones. And the fireplace looked like an unscalable wall, just like a, a massive cliff or something like that. And so really everything in the room was made to look like you were really low to the ground and looking up as if everything was awesome and big, not as if you were a human walking in a room and looking down. It reminded me of this movie that I watched when I was a kid. It was really cool when I was a kid. It's going to show how old I am right now. But anybody ever heard of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? <laughs> yes, 1989. I was a three-year-old. I didn't watch it as a three-year-old. But um, it's basically about this scientist dad who invents a shrink ray and he accidentally shrinks his kids and their entire world gets flipped upside down because they basically become the size of little ants. And so um, they end up getting kind of, I don't even know how, but they're in their yard and their tiny little lawn becomes this massive jungle and the grass becomes these giant trees and, and little, you know, Lego pieces become the size of houses and ants become monsters. Here's a picture to kind of give you an idea. Hopefully it'll work. I don't know if it will or not, but yes. So that's one of the little kids and that's a Lego brick, just one of the small Lego bricks. And that's where they hide from the evil scorpion. I have a picture of that too. That's nope. <laughs> 
1989 Google images right there. There's a scorpion attacking them. Just use your imagination. Um, wow. Okay, so the big question is, um, which perspective is the right perspective? Or which perspective is the truest perspective of reality? Is it the ant's perspective where a tiny lawn looks like an endless jungle and Lego bricks look like mansions? Or is it the dog's perspective where table legs look like massive columns and normal chairs look like majestic thrones? Or is it the human perspective that sees everything from a more elevated view, that sees everything in its right context? Now, of course, we would say the human perspective because it's ours and we like our perspective. And also it's true. The, the more elevated your view is, the more context you get. And the more context you get, the more meaning you get. And the more meaning you get, the closer you get to a right perspective of reality. Now, here's another question. What if there's a perspective that's higher than ours? So you go from ants to dogs to humans, and with each rise and elevation, you get greater context and greater meaning, and you get closer to seeing things the way that they truly are. But what if there's really a divine perspective? What if there is a God who sees everything from an even higher vantage point than you and me? Well, we, we came to worship that God. I mean, we're in a space where everyone believes that. But there are, sure, I'm sure, some in here who, who don't. What if there's a God who doesn't just see the trees, but who sees the whole forest? Who, who doesn't just know the intricate details of your life, but who sees all of them, the whole picture, the whole story, that all of those details are making up even before they happen. Think about it almost like a parade. Like, you've, you've been to a parade, I'm sure. I've taken my kids to some recently, so they're fresh in my mind. But when you're on the street level at a parade, uh, you're on the ground, you're, you're experiencing everything one thing at a time in succession. So you have the, the prom queen on the convertible, and she rolls in, and she's waving at everyone, and, and then she goes by, and then there's the high school band, and they're playing their music, and then in Cary, where we took our kids, we used to live in Cary, the, the karate classes were out, and the karate classes were showing off their cool moves, and then they went by, and the fire truck was coming, and you, and you get the point, but basically, you experience everything one at a time. You don't even know what's on the other. You don't know why people are cheering a mile down the road. You just can't wait to see what it is. And you experience things in succession. But what if, what if God is like um, in, in a blimp, so to speak, and he's 30,000 feet above everything, and he doesn't experience things in succession. He just sees all of it at once. What if that's how he saw your life? And what if that's actually how he saw all of human history? That nothing happened in succession. It was just all laid out before him that he saw it all, he knew it all, and he even planned it all. It was all part of his decree. I guess the even bigger question then would become, what if that God actually decided to communicate with us so that he could give us a glimpse into what he sees and what he knows and what he's planned. What if he spoke through prophets like Daniel so that he could give us some context for all the chaos unfolding around us? What if he gave us this book that we so often take for granted 
just collects dust on the shelves? What if he gave us this book so that he could get us off of the street and bring us up to his level so that we could see things the way they really are? Wouldn't that be good news? So that no matter how hard things get, we could have joy. No matter how chaotic things get, we could have comfort. No matter how dark the days might feel, we could have hope. Guys, that's what the last few chapters of the book of Daniel are all about. They are essentially God swooping us up, taking us off the street, and just for a brief moment, pulling off the blinders so that we can see the world as it really is from his vantage point. He wants us to see things in the right context, the way they really are, because in order for you to go through exile, in order for me to go through exile with joy and freedom and courage and hope, we have to have his perspective on what's going on. So with that being said, my goal today is to try to help all of us essentially climb into the blimp that is Daniel 10 through 12 so that it can get us 30,000 feet in the air. I don't know if bumps go that high. Let's call it 15. I don't know. 15,000 feet in the air so that we can see the world from God's perspective. And there are four main things in these last few chapters that I want to highlight as we bring this book to a close. If you're taking notes, I'm going to show you four observations about the world that we can only see from God's vantage point. First, God has set the date and the time for the end of the world as we know it. And I say as we know it because it's not the end of the world. It's, it's actually going to be the beginning of the world in its truest form. So it's the end of the world as we know it, which is just a shadow. Anyways, but more on that in a minute. Okay, verse, verse 1 of chapter 12. I told you we're going to be flying around a lot, but we're going to use chapter 9 as a, as a foundation. Hopefully it makes sense when it's all said and done. Chapter 12. But at that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Um, chapter 12, verse 9. The words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Verse 13, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand at your allotted place at the end of days. Now, in case you are thinking that he's talking in a general sense about the end of the world, go back to chapter 9, which is our foundation, because that is the key to understanding everything that happens in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Look back at chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Notice, that is a specific amount of time. Whenever there's a number in the Bible, it matters. It means something. Don't just brush over it. Seventy weeks are decreed. And then if you look at verse 25 and verse 27, which Cheryl read for us, you see that those 70 weeks are actually divided up into three sections. Section one is seven weeks. Section two is 62 weeks, and section three is one week. Now, we're dealing with numbers again today. Don't get nervous. It's going to get mathy, but we got to pay attention and work really hard because this is really, really important. Guys, what we do with these 70 weeks won't just determine how we interpret the rest of Daniel, but it will interpret how we interpret all it will determine how we interpret all of reality. It, it, it matters that much. Because they show us that 
God has a specific plan, and that plan has a specific amount of time. And when that time runs out and his plan is accomplished, Jesus is coming back, riding on the clouds, bringing justice and righteousness in his kingdom forever and ever. So this is really important. So what are the 70 weeks? Now there are really uh, four keys in this text that help us unlock what the 70 weeks are talking about. I'm gonna try to go through these as quickly as possible. It is very mathy. And so I've written it all out, and I'm hopefully not mess it up. But you'll tell me about it if I do later. So I'm, I'm looking forward to those uh, emails. It'll be fun. Um, now, first key, four keys that help us interpret this. First key, um, the word week in Hebrew is literally the word seven. So we read in the English 70 weeks. In the Hebrew, it's 70 sevens. Um, like a decade in the English language spans 10 years a week in the Hebrew language spans seven years. So it's, it's, it's figurative and literal in the same way that we talk about a decade. That's what he's talking about here. A week is seven years. So put your math hats on, get out your calculators. What is 70 weeks? Yes, 490. Who said that? Yes, come on. My man. 490 years. 70 weeks is 490 years. History is broken up into three sections. Those sections are made up of groups of seven years. Here's a visual to help you. Section one, seven weeks, 49 years. Section two, 62 weeks, 434 years. And section three is one week, and that's seven years. So that is the first key, a week is a group of seven years. So God's 70-week plan for his people is 490 years. We're good so far, right? We did it. All right, moving on. When did the 70 weeks start? That leads us to the second key. Look back at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. So in case you didn't catch that, this is the second key. God's 70-week plan for his people begins with a decree. It begins with a word that goes out, and this decree is to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem. Now, I would argue with many other scholars that that word or that decree was actually given by King Artaxerxes. And it was given to a man named Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes basically told Nehemiah to go back to his homeland, his home city, and to rebuild the wall, to rebuild and restore all that was in the city. And we actually know the exact date that that decree was given. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't history amazing? March 14th, 445 B.C. is when that word went out. The book of Nehemiah tells us that it only took 55 days to rebuild the walls, but the rest of the project lasted for 49 years, or a week of sevens. Are you still with me? Okay, that's the second key. The third key is probably the most fascinating to me, because it shows us that an anointed one 
is going to be violently murdered or cut off. That, that phrase cut off means violently murdered at the end of the second section of history. So the first section starts with a word going out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. The second section ends with an anointed one being cut off. So we figured out the first one. Now the big question is, who is the anointed one? All right. First section of God's plan starts in March of 445 B.C. It goes on for 49 years or one week. Cities restored. Then the second section of 62 weeks began. Do you have any idea what happened 434 years after the restoration of Jerusalem? Do you know what today is? It's Palm Sunday. Let me tell you what happened. Now, I, I didn't figure this out, so you can trust that it's real. There are, thankfully, many people who are way smarter and better at math than me. Specifically, one guy named Sir, Sir Robert Anderson. He, uh, he was head of Scotland Yard, brilliant mathematician, and he loved the book of Daniel, and so he figured this out for us. What he did was he took the 69 weeks and he broke them down into days. So we've already seen seven years, 69 weeks, 483 years. 483 years broken all the way down is 173,880 days. I prayed a lot this past week. So Sir Robert Anderson went all the way back to 445 B.C. when Artaxerxes sent out the word March 14th, the word to rebuild Jerusalem, and he counted 173,880 days. And do you know what he found out? He found out that 483 years or all of these days from March 14th, 445 B.C. was April 6th, 32 A.D., Do you know what happened April 6th? You, you don't know. I'm just asking questions. I'm, I'm toying with you. April 6th, 32 AD is, is the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan was, was the day of the week that the people of Israel were choosing a lamb to be sacrificed so that they could celebrate the Passover four days later, which is the 14th of Nisan. You know what happened on the 10th of Nisan, 32 AD? Jesus mounted a donkey. And he rode down the Mount of Olives. And he rode into the city of Jerusalem where people picked up palm branches and shouted Hosanna and worshipped him as their long-awaited Messiah. The original Palm Sunday. 69 weeks after the Edict of Artaxerxes, to the day. This is why Jesus wept over the city when he entered it on that Palm Sunday. Luke 19, they should have been able to do the math. They should have known it was him. They should have received him, but instead of receiving him, almost as soon as they were done worshiping him, they were saying, crucify him. Cut him down. Cut him off. And, and so he's weeping. Look at this passage with me in Luke 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, they should have known. It was the 173,880th day. It was prophesied, and yet they didn't. And so this prophecy is yet again fulfilled. The anointed one was cut off. The anointed one was left with nothing. This is what Daniel 9 25, 27 is pointing to. And yet this is the beauty of, of this prophecy being fulfilled. This is the beauty of Palm Sunday. Another prophet, a guy by the name of Isaiah, gave us a different perspective on this cutting down. He gave us a different perspective on this brutal, violent murder. And he did it in Isaiah 53. And he said that, yes, the Messiah is going to get cut off, but that's part of the plan. Because he's not just getting cut off for himself, he's getting cut off for others. Look at Isaiah 53, talking about the same day. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, that's Daniel. Circle that. Draw a line back to Daniel. Cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquity. Guys, Daniel saw that the promised Messiah would come on the day that the people of Israel were choosing a lamb. That's when he would announce himself. Isaiah saw that that Messiah was actually coming to be the lamb. You put them together and you have this full picture that God knew what he was doing all along. He wouldn't be cut off for himself. He'd be cut off for the sins of the world so that out of the anguish of his soul, many would be made righteous in him. Guys, the death of Christ ended 483 years. We're 69 weeks. We can trace it to the day. And so now the big question is, what is this final week? in the 70-week program. What's the last group of seven all about? And this is what scholars debate and discuss. I mean, all of this stuff is 
you could read books and books and books about all of this, but scholars call this the tribulation, or the time of trouble. Um, and some scholars believe it's already happened. I'm talking to one right now in our, in our church, a dear brother. I'm going to convince him otherwise right now. Some people believe this has already happened. I would argue that this hasn't happened yet. And that leads us to the fourth key that will help us make sense of all of this. Fourth key is actually the purpose statement in verse 24. Basically, it's the purpose of the 70-week program. Look at it with me. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. So, if you want to know if this final week or tribulation or whatever you want to call it has already happened, all you have to do is look at that purpose statement and see if it has been accomplished yet or not. Just won the argument. <laughs> I looked over there. I thought he was over there. He's not over there, so sorry. Sorry, guys. <laughs> guys, it's pretty clear. Things like finishing of transgression, of ending sin, of establishing righteousness, these things have not happened yet, and they won't happen until Jesus returns. This is really important for us to understand. I'm just messing around with my friend. This is really important for us to understand because this means that there's actually a gap between the first two sections and the last section of the 70-week program. It, it's a parenthesis. And you and I are living in that parenthesis right now. It's a parenthesis that the Old Testament didn't know about, and it's called the church age. The church age was a mystery. It was an epiphany that wasn't revealed until after Christ came the first time. And so Daniel saw a succession of 70 weeks, and it's true, but in between the first two sections and that final week is us. At the end of our age will be one final week. At the end of our age will be one seven-year period. And then after that, Christ is going to come back on the clouds. He's going to make everything right. He's going to end transgression. He's going to get rid of sin. He's going to usher in righteousness. And his kingdom will be established on the earth forever and ever. That's how it all ends. He will reign with everlasting Righteousness, all of God's program is leading up to that. There is a set date and a set time to the end of the world as we know it. He has a plan. He's in control. Everything that has ever happened in the history of the world and everything that's going to happen in the future of the world is all a part of it. And so you can trust that he's in control. That's the first thing we see from God's heavenly vantage point. It's all wrapped up in these 70 weeks. The second thing we see is this. There are divine beings working behind the scenes to impact everything that happens in our world today. I promise someday we will do a series on this. Let me give you a nutshell. This is what the entire chapter of Daniel 10 is all about. The next chapter flowing out of chapter 9. Have any of you ever been to a high school play or a Broadway or maybe you've acted in a play? You've got some, some really, you guys need to get some culture. Okay, all right, there's some hands. <laughs> there's some of you out here. Wow, we're like in South and we're in a big city, you would think. But okay, it's okay, it's okay. Don't worry, don't, don't feel bad. Um, 
I'll, I'll describe what plays look like to you. Um, so <laughs> um, that was supposed to be the easy part. So um, just imagine that, that you're down there and there's somebody acting out stuff on a stage. And, and usually you can just see a couple of people singing and dancing and acting and all this kind of stuff. Behind the curtain, though, it's mayhem. Like there might be three people on stage and then behind the curtain, there are like 20 people running around, trying not to bump into each other. They're pulling on ropes and they're moving sets and they're prepping costumes and they're helping people change and it's chaos. And it's really exciting. I was a part of our senior play in high school. I played a mobster in Kiss Me Kate. It was awful, Uh, but it was fun. Uh, Now listen, from the audience's perspective on a ground level, It just looks like a couple people doing stuff on a stage, but from a bird's eye view, if you could get above the stage and you could see behind the curtain, you would see that there were so many people making all of it happen. That's what Daniel 10 is showing us about the world. It basically pulls the curtain back and exposes the 20 people pulling the ropes and moving the sets and prepping the costumes. And these people aren't actually people. They're divine beings. It's wild that right now this is happening. Daniel gets a glimpse of it in verse 11. Let me just read you this nutshell overview. He's talking to one of these divine beings. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, man, greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. But get this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for the days yet to come. Okay, a couple of things that I need you to see here. First, God heard Daniel's prayer the moment he prayed it. Day one. The word is uttered, God hears the word, and he sends his messenger to answer that word. That's what the first verse shows us in chapter 10. Verse, I'm sorry, second verse. Daniel's mourning, he's praying for three full weeks, he gets no answer. So what happened? He's praying for three weeks, God's heard his prayer day one, he sent a response day one. Like, did the angel get lost? Did his GPS malfunction? Was he sightseeing, you know, taking his merry time? No. The prince of Persia showed up and fought him for 21 days so that he couldn't provide an answer to Daniel. Now, real quick, oftentimes when the word prince is used in the Old Testament, it is used to describe these divine beings in the unseen realm. For example, Ezekiel 28 um, we, we, we see the Prince of Tyre, which is one of those Mesopotamian countries. The Prince of Tyre is referred to, but you know what the Prince of Tyre is also referred to as? The Prince of Tyre who was there with us in Eden. 
so, so princes are not like earthly princes. It's another word for angels or demons or watchers or holy ones, where in some cases, like in Psalm 82, they're actually called gods, lower G gods. They're, they're created by the God of gods. Don't get confused. Whatever you want to call them, they are divine beings in the unseen realm. And there is a hierarchy in their ranks. So the one talking to Daniel is a messenger. It's probably Gabriel. He's the messenger that shows up over and over again throughout the Old and New Testament. He's trying to bring this message to Daniel, but the prince of Persia is able to withstand him, which means he's stronger than Gabriel, and Gabriel can't do anything about it. So God sends Michael, who's a chief prince. You could, you could also call him an archangel. Chief prince, archangel are synonymous. So he sends Michael. We find out in, in chapter 12, Michael is the prince of the people of God. He's the protector of the people of God. And so Michael comes, and he starts fighting the prince of Persia so Gabriel can go and deliver the message. All of this is happening behind the scenes. All Daniel knows is he's been praying for three weeks and he doesn't know why God's not answering him. That's what he sees from the, from the ground level, from the street. Behind the scenes, there's so much more going on. What's really important for us to understand, though, about this realm is that what Daniel 10 and many other passages and the rest of the Old Testament show us is that these divine beings are actually assigned to different kingdoms. And they're assigned to different empires. There's something about divine geography, which is laid out starting with the Tower of Babel or Babel. If you're American, you say Babel. It's fine. Um, Okay, so there's a prince assigned to Persia. There's a prince assigned to Tyre. Michael is assigned to Israel. On and on it goes. Psalm 82 pulls back the curtain even more on all of this stuff. And it shows us that one day the God of gods is going to take his seat in his divine council and he's going to judge all of these other gods for the way that they misled and misruled the nations that they had been assigned. Read Psalm 82 when you go home. It will blow your mind. It says, Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God, took his seat among the Elohim, which is the plural word for God's lowercase g, and he rebukes them for the way they led the nations. Just look at this snapshot from Psalm 82 with me. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you will die and fall like any prince. What you and I need to understand is that there are divine beings working behind the scenes to impact everything that happens in our world today. From a human perspective, we can't see them. On the ground level, they're invisible. And so God is swooping us up and he's giving us his vantage point so that we can see what's really going on in the world. Things are not what they seem. This is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Guys, this should radically change the way you view the world. It should radically change the way you view this country, specifically how you view the rulers of this country. We get so caught up in politics and this side versus that side because that's all we can see. You had better believe we got some princes working behind the scenes. You know why politics are so crazy? You know why it's all so corrupt? You know why it's so easy to look at and be like, why are people so blind? Why is there so much darkness How can people get so duped by all this? Why is there war after war after war after war going on? And you can say, well, it's about money, or it's about oil, or it's about territory, it's about ethnicity. And you can say all of that stuff, and that might be true, but there's something behind the scenes that's motivating it. These, These divine beings hate God. They rebelled against him with the serpent in the garden. They rebelled against him, and now they are ruling the nations in a way that will lead them away from God, and they're doing everything they can to thwart his plan and attack his people. Don't be surprised, because our battle is not with flesh and blood. This means we do not have a human enemy. We do not have a human enemy. And I was just reading this past week, in the 1950s, uh, there were the polls that that would come out about interracial marriage, and like, did you think it was okay to marry a person of of another race and all this kind of stuff, and in the 1950s, it was was mixed, okay? I didn't write this down, this isn't in my manuscript, so I'm not going to give you numbers because they'll be wrong. Um, Recently, though, and this is what I just read this past week, it's, it's totally flipped. Now, the consensus in America is everyone is fine with interracial marriage, but you know what we're really not fine with? Interparty marriage. And, and so there's a new term that has been coined. It's partyism. It is the new racism. It is we actually despise those on the other side. Like, we despise them. We dehumanize them. We villainize them. Guys, we do not battle with flesh and blood. We should radically change the way we view the world. Satan is called the God of this age. He has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. If you see people just lost in wickedness, you should have compassion on them, not rage over them. Your battle is not with them. Satan and his princes hate God. They hate his anointed. They hate his people. Right now they are using every ounce of power and influence and authority they can muster to turn the nations away from him. Listen. Everything that is happening in our world today is a result of what is going on behind the scenes. Let me give you some encouragement though. Just with my high school play. We're all pulling the ropes, and we're moving the sets, and we're prepping the costumes, but there's only one director. Same thing's true of this world. There are a lot of people working behind the scenes that we can't see. We, 
probably shouldn't even call them people, princes. There are a lot of princes out there, but there's one director. And, and this is the beautiful thing and the funny thing about it. God is so smart, he lets them think they're getting away with it. He lets them think that they're thwarting him. In fact, the reason that Jesus concealed himself so much and the reason that he concealed his plan so much of ultimately being crucified so that he could atone for the sins of the world was because if they knew his plan, they wouldn't have crucified him. So he's, God is always working and he's letting them work, but he is accomplishing his plan in the process. Isn't that incredible? There are divine beings working behind the scenes to impact everything that happens in our world today. The third thing we need to see, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Chapter 11. Chapter 11 gives us more insight into the tribulation and what it's going to be like. So um, just a nutshell of chapter 11. First 35 verses are all about Greece and Persia. And I just felt in my study this past week, I've talked about Greece and Persia so much. I'm, I'm, I'm over it. Okay, um, but let me give you a cool thing um, from, from chapter 11. There are 35 verses about Greece and Persia. In those 35 verses, there are 135 prophecies, and every single one of them for, were fulfilled in those two nations. So it just goes back again to what we've been talking about for the last few weeks about prophecy and, and, and the reliability of Scripture. The second half of chapter 11, though, it's not quite half, is all about the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist. Antichrist, according to chapter 11, and this is going to be an overview, starting in verse 36, will pay no attention to the God of his fathers, which implies that he will be a Jew. He'll despise the one beloved by women, which is a Jewish reference to the Messiah, because every woman longed to be the one that gave birth to the Messiah. So, so there was this phrase, desired of, of, of women, was every woman desired to be the mother of the Messiah. Okay, So he despises the Messiah. Ultimately, he's going to set himself up as the true Messiah, and he's going to demand the worship of the nations. Now, chapter 9, 27, again, is our foundation. It says he's going to make a covenant with Israel at the beginning of the seven years, but then halfway through it, he's going to break that covenant, and he's going to defy all that is holy. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, This time will be a troublesome time like the world has never seen before. And again, in case you're wondering, if this has already happened, go to Matthew 24 and look at what Jesus says. Jesus says it hasn't come yet. Verse 21. He said, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. He's pointing back to Daniel 9. Or Daniel 12, there has never been a time this bad in the history of the world. This seven-year period is going to be awful. You've never seen anything like it. Jesus is saying, yes, that's true, and it hasn't happened yet. It's coming. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Revelation gives us even more detail on this, and I'll just give you a little taste of it, because it's a lot. It's like a horror movie. Revelation 16, 1 through 4. Read it all when you get home if you want to, because this is a small portion. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth seven bowls of the wrath of God. 
So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I'm just gonna stop there. That's three out of the seven bowls. It gets worse. If you have hope in this world, you are in for a terrifying and tragic letdown. It does not get better from here. I mean, honestly, like we see it in our, in our, our climate predictors and, and our doomsday sayers or whatever. They don't really know what's going on. We, we've been given the blimp perspective. It doesn't get better. The end of the world has been determined and the years leading up to it are gonna be worse than we've ever seen before, ever, ever we'll see again. So what are you supposed to do with that? Because this is an overview. This isn't, this isn't into the minutiae. What are you supposed to do with that? Paul would say, get your eyes off of the present. Get your eyes off of the temporary and lock them on heaven. Set your eyes on the things that are above. Jesus would say, don't store up treasure here on earth. It's all fading away. It's all passing away. Store up treasure in heaven. Get your eyes off earth. Now, this does not mean that we just sit back and we're like, well, it's all going to burn anyway, so I guess I'll just chill for a little bit. It also doesn't mean that you go like dig a bunker and start buying all the canned goods at, at Harris Teeter and like start preparing for it. Like we're not told to do either of those things. The wise, D Daniel 12, we're going to look at it in a minute. The wise will lead other people into righteousness. How do you prepare for the end of the world? You lead as many people to the one who's going to come and make it all right. The one who's going to renew all things. The one who's going to restore all things. The one who's going to create a new heaven and a new earth and rule with righteousness. If you're wise, if you want to prepare for the end of the world, bring as many people into the kingdom as you possibly can. That's how you prepare. That's how you store up treasure and the life to come. From our perspective, this world looks like it's all there is, and we get caught up in celebrity gossip, and we get caught up on TikTok, and we get caught up on money, and we get caught up in sports, and it just means so much. <laughs> Liverpool playing City, like at 11, 15 minutes, we're going over, I'm sorry. It, it feels like it means so much. It's all fading away. We need to get off the street and get into the blimp and see things as they really are. That leads us to the final thing that Daniel wants us to see. Yes, the world's days are numbered. Yes, divine beings are leading the nations astray. Yes, it's gonna get a lot worse before it gets better, but you had better believe it gets better. God 
will judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. And this is how the book ends. Look at chapter 12 with me. But at that time, your people will be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of these who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Guys, did you know that this is the first time in the Bible that we read about everlasting life? It's the first time that we're ever promised that temporary distress will lead to eternal deliverance. But get this, it's only possible for the people found written in the book. Did you notice that? For those who are in the book, there's a great promise. For those who are not in the book, there is a great warning. Some of you need to hear the warning today. Deliverance is coming. It is coming. But it's only coming for some. Renewal and restoration are coming. Everlasting happiness and glory are coming. But only for those whose names are found in the book. And so the big question is, how in the world do you get in the book? Ultimately, that's what every religion in the world is trying to answer. Whether they're, they've got a tribulation or a utopia or an enlightenment or paradise or heaven or whatever it is. Everyone's trying to figure out how to get there. How do you get in the book? It's all about what you choose to do with Jesus. John 1 put it this way. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will not perish but have everlasting life. Acts 16.30, the jailer brought Paul and Silas out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to make sure my name is found in the book? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Finally, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So how do you know if your name is going to be found in the book Believe in the one who came to die. Believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and you will not be put to shame. Guys, what does it mean to believe in Christ? Is it just saying, oh, I believe in God? Because if that's true, then 87% of America is going to be in the book. Because 87% of Americans believe in God, believe in Jesus. So what does it mean to believe? James 2.19 says, even the demons believe. The princes believe in, in Jesus. And when they think about him, they tremble. So what is Jesus looking for? I think the best illustration I've ever heard, and I shared it about a year ago. I'm going to share it again. I think the best illustration of true belief happened back in 1860 at the Niagara Falls. This massive crowd had gathered, and they had gathered to see a guy named Blondin walk across a tightrope 
over the Niagara Falls, a thousand foot walk, 160 feet suspended above the raging water that was just massively dropping underneath him with no harness and no safety net. The massive crowd came to watch Blondin, and he just casually walked across this tightrope back and forth dozens and dozens of times. And everybody's cheering and everybody's in love with Blondin. And so then he comes up to the crowd and he's like, okay, who thinks that I can carry someone on my back across this wire? And everyone's like, yeah, woo, you can do it, Blondin, yeah. And then he goes up to this guy and he's like, all right, man, jump on. What do you think the guy did? No way. <laughs> no way. Well, everyone said that they thought he could do it. Everyone believed that he could do it. But then when, when the time came to, to put that belief into action and to jump on the guy's back, everyone bailed. Guys, mental assent and verbal assent is not real belief. Real belief requires action, and there are two vital steps in this action. Literally, belief is one Two. It's those two steps. The first step is admitting the fact that if you were standing on the edge of Niagara Falls and there was a tightrope spanning a thousand feet and it was suspended 160 above the waterfall, you would admit, I can't do that on my own. I don't have the skill. I don't have the practice. I don't have the ability. I don't have the know-how. I don't have the bravery or courage. I cannot span that wire on my own. That is the first step of belief. One of the same things true of you and God. God is way over there in the perfection of his holiness, totally removed from sin. Psalm 1.5 says that those who have sinned cannot stand in the presence of God. And Romans 3 says every single one of you have sinned. So that means none of us can stand in the presence of God. We don't have the ability. We don't have the courage. If we did, it would be kamikaze, right? We cannot get to him on our own. That's the first step. Admit that. Own that. You'll never be good enough. You can't give enough money to the poor. You can't say enough Hail Marys. You can't confess enough to the priest. You can't take enough pilgrimages. You can't meditate enough. You can't grovel enough. You can't do enough penance to get across the wire into the presence of God. That's why Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Own it. Second step, if you can do that, if you can take that first step, that's the hardest one. As someone once said, it's harder to get people lost than it is to get people saved because we have a really high view of ourselves. It's harder to get people to believe that they can't walk across, as Americans especially. So take that step. Then the second step is the easy one. First, admit that you can't get across on your own. Second, climb on the back of the one who can. This is the difference between every religion and Christianity. Every religion in the history of the world says you can take some steps to get across that wire and get to God. Christianity is the only one that says you can't do it. You'll never be good enough, but God loves you so much that he came across the wire to pick you up, put you on his shoulders, and carry you back home. It is, it is the only religion in the history of the world that has ever said that. 
that still says that to this day. And so the first step is believing that you can't get there. The second step is trusting that he can. That is what belief is. It's not mental assent. It is staking your life on the person and the work and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the question you have to ask yourself today is, do you believe in him? The end is set. Date and time determined. There's all kinds of stuff going on behind the scenes. It's going to get worse. Things are not looking great for planet Earth. But for those whose names are found in the book, Jesus is coming. The one who rides on the clouds is coming to make war with all of evil, and he's going to speak a word, and we don't know what that word is, but it's only going to take one. And at that word, everyone will bow. On heaven, on earth, and he will establish his everlasting kingdom. If you have not believed in him, make today the day. Put your trust in him. Believe. I'm going to invite you all to bow your heads with me and respond in prayer. I'm going to invite you to use this time to confess your sin. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we usually confess early on in our service. and We have a time where we own our need for grace and our, our need for Christ. We're going to start doing that after the preaching of the word moving forward. I just feel like it flows better. Um, and so would you use this time to confess your sin to God and respond to this text? If you need to respond in belief, do it. Um, if you need to get up and reconcile with someone over something that is between you, do it. And after you pray, um, I'll lead us to the table where we're going to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Christ for us. So go ahead and bow your heads and, and pray in response.